The Art Dealer Diaries are brought to you by Medicine Man Gallery, specializing in antique Native American art, early Western art, including the famed Maynard Dixon, as well as modern art. You can find everything online at medicinemangallery.com. There's over 6,000 objects to select from. Also, the Charles Bloom Murder Mystery Series, written by yours truly, me, Mark Sublett. These can be found on Audible, eBooks, Amazon, and of course, the gallery at medicinemangallery.com. I had Andrew Walker on today. He's the executive director of the Eamon Carter Museum, and he was kind enough to fly out to do this in person. And wow, it was really worth it for me. And I think for him as well. It uh, went two hours, so we're going to make this into a two-episode podcast. And the thing that really is unique, I guess, about this podcast is we really got into what it means to be a museum, the things that you have to look at for the future, and how things are changing, both from the way you collect and culturally. And it seems to me that the Eamon Carter is really on top of this and doing some amazing uh, exhibitions. They've got one that's on um, indigenous art right now and uh, photography, as well as just how they approach the way that they see their community in Fort Worth, but also as a national kind of uh, exhibit, uh, a museum that really sets itself apart from others. And one of the things I didn't know is they have the probably, if not the close to the largest collection of photography. Uh, in the country, right up there with the Getty, maybe more than the Getty. And so those kind of things come out when you get the chance to spend time and really understand what an institution does. And more importantly, to some extent, what I'm interested in is how Andrew got there and why, and his role in, you know, being an executive director of a major Western Museum, but also just how do you get there, right? How do you end up in that position? And he has a unique and interesting story, as so many people do, that I get the opportunity to talk to, and Andrew didn't disappoint. So this is a two-part episode. This is episode two. Part of what, you know, part of what we've been doing, too, just to build on that story a bit, is beginning to develop the relationships within the um, community, the indigenous community in the region so that we have um, not only access to advice, Mm -hmm. but we can build the relationships that are necessary to manifest exhibitions potentially. And as I was saying a little bit before we started, we, we want, you know, for example, we, we, we anticipate developing relationship with um, the school for advanced research in Santa Fe because Mm -hmm. the idea, the, the um, methodological approach that they're really developing and introducing to the world of cultural um, interrogation investigation has already impacted our photography show. Mm. And, you know, to be able to look at the um, material culture of creative, of creative living creatives, but also historical is something that we, we see as a, a frontier for us. Mm. And we haven't done it that much. I mean, in my time, we were one of the venues for the Diker collection, which yeah. is now at the Met. But yeah. beyond that, there hasn't been a lot of historical um, presentation of indigenous culture. Right. Yeah. And the Diker collection, or they actually have uh, some of the beadwork contemporary at the herd. Uh, oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. Right now. Mm-hmm. If you're up there, go look at it. It's uh, you know, Rhonda 
holy rolling horse, all the you know beadwork people that are you know big uh, images of you know natives on horses, all beaded. It's all contemporary though. Yeah, it's a Diker collection that they loan. It's great. It's in the Sandra Day O'Connor. All right, I'll have, to go, I'll have to go check that another out thing. for sure. So I have a question about Maynard Dixon. I only saw one little drawing, ink drawing in your collection, a 1905 piece. Let's talk about that. <laughs> well, we the, definitely let's need talk Maynard about the Dixon in the collection. Uh -huh. yes. Well, we have Maynard in the community. Yeah. So there are a couple of collectors who um, have demonstrated their deep interest in yes. him. And of course, you know, in that larger vision that that I was describing about engaging collectors more intentionally, there's there's um, expectation and opportunity. But we um, we would that filling that hole in different ways would be right. important. And you know, I was thinking about this, and and um, and knowing the work that you've done, Mark, and the importance not only with Maynard Dixon, but in the um, the multivariant stories that have that that define the American West today. Mm -hmm. um, that. Maynard Dixon to me is like a grandfather to some of the, what I find the most interesting work about the American West that's happening. Yes. Not only today, but in the intervening years as well. Mm -hmm. And I think about, you know, the, those that are much more, well, it's a, it's a debate, isn't it? Because there's a, there are a couple different tracks in the more traditional arts that oscillate between um, a more modernist point of view and a more conventional conservative point. Of view. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're, we're part of a consortium of museums that is about to go through a, um, instrumental change, but it's called museums West. And most of the museums that I'm sure, you know, well, um, are part of that. It's about 14 or 15 museums. And right now, Seth Hopkins is mm -hmm. the president of that group out of the booth. And, you know, we, it's super important. It's super important debate within the idea of what does the American West mean today? Right. Historically, contemporaneously, environmentally, and artistically. And you can just add as many other elements of, of that mm -hmm. um, to that story. And where is the strength of that storytelling? Or maybe it doesn't have to be one or the other, but how do we knit this all together in a way that provides for um, diverse points of view? Because I see it aesthetically. Mm -hmm. And there's some work that I find very compelling from its technical acuity, mm -hmm. but not as interesting from its narrative piece. And then there are others like Dixon and the generations that follow him, including even some outsider work that's looking at the West in, in ways that just get me so excited. Right. Well, you know, you look at Dixon, and, you know, he was influenced by Remington writing him when he's, you know, 15 and Remington writes him back, you know, and really encourages him to follow his dream of being a, a painter. And then Russell, they're friends, they're, they also compete, but, you know, they have this inner relationship, which is very interesting, you know, Russell comes and visits him in San Francisco. He visits him in Montana. They visit in New York. You know, so there's that bridge. Yet he, he goes all the way from starting in 1875 to, you know, the, the, the golden age of uh, you know, Mark Twain 
all the way through the atomic bomb. And he affects all these individuals, like Mel and, you know, Logan and Jez or whoever. You know, they all are, see and have inspiration. I don't know if uh, some would be more likely to, to say that is the case or not. But so he's a clear bridge of the 20th century. Yeah. And he was all about Native American rights, too, right? He was really against Indian schools. You know, he thought that that was, that was just horrific. He lives with all the tribes. He really appreciates them. He looks at them as artists and, and thinks their art is the most important kind of art. So he's this important guy. And he's married to Dorothea Lange, who I'm sure you have in your photography yes, we do. collection. Yeah, a few things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, when I see it, I was like, well, that's a hole. And I wonder how, you know. It's, you know, it's interesting because part of the, part of the development of the story that broadens the understanding of America from not just about the conventional Western expansion to something different. And part of that was just, again, ambition towards mm -hmm. making sure that Western cities didn't have just Western collections um, was that they didn't, the museum didn't choose to follow that trajectory past Russell and Remington, mm -hmm. right? So even their commitment for a very short period of time through Amon to the Taoist school mm -hmm. never deepened. Mm. And in fact, the museum sort of distance itself. And I think Maynard Dixon was caught in that. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. But so Russell does... dies in what, 24 and and Remington in 1909. Yeah. So and Dixon's active in those periods, but I get it. You know, he he fell through the cracks. Well, and from the collecting point of view, right. because what what you know Ruth wanted to do from the get-go was to fill in the By holes. the way, Russell died in 26 for uh, 26, Russell. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Because everyone out there going, he didn't die in 24. No, he did not. <laughs> died in 26. I but Remington did die in 19. Appendicitis, <laughs> actually, is what he by, died of. By the way, there's a great exhibition at the Sid Richardson right now about his last decade, Remington's last decade. Uh, yeah, it was his best, really. Fabulous. Actually. Oh, my God. he could, I, Walking through that show was like, this man, if he wasn't such a hard liver, yeah. He what was waiting for him to do right. is yeah. remarkable. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see how he would have continued to expand his the way he was painting. But I would say that we're we're able to make that new attention to these periods significantly through first through our collectors. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a, a Dixon on our walls that's loaned. Nice. For, you know, for a period of time. Yeah. And one of the things that we've done, we did a big renovation that opened in 2019. One of the things the curators developed, and it's pretty remarkable. If you haven't been to the Carter since 2019, you're yeah, not going to recognize it oh, when wow. you go through. But one of the things the curators have done in order to bring dynamism to the permanent collection, mm -hmm. I always thought this was like a permanent collection in its very name is like, who's going to come back, right? You go see it. Oh, it's always there. Right. It's like the, uh -huh. it's like the uh, Empire State Building. Ah, we'll see it next time. <laughs> One of the things the curators did to manifest the importance of the collection's ability to be dynamic was every three months, 
they do a what they call ex expanded views. Mm. And so in every gallery of the permanent collection, they add work that could be from any media, any time period that opens up a dialogue. Yeah, so it's always them. fresh. Too. It's always fresh. So yeah. if you come, you know, you need to come every three months in yeah. order to see what's new. <laughs> Smart. I'm not sure we've <laughs> manifested that uh -huh. in actual numbers yet, but nonetheless, that's the goal. And I think you can do it with a museum the size of the car. Yeah. I mean, and it'd be hard to do it too, at the right? Art Institute, you know. <laughs> yeah, you have like, what, 50,000 objects online or something? How many? You have a lot. Oh, yeah, we do. I mean, we've digitized almost everything in the yeah. collection. And we have, I always say we have the largest um, collection by number in Texas. Yeah. Which I think is true. Houston might, no, no, we have, a, it's bigger than Houston, but a lot of that has to do with the photography collection yeah. because it's so massive. But I always laugh because, and I do this hopefully kindly, it is meant to be kindly, but the, the, the idea of strength being about size is not always right. It's a, it's a, it's a qualified discussion because the Kimball has about 400 objects total mm -hmm. but i mean who would ever say the kimball isn't a rich experience right. no of... it's true <laughs> i love that music so i do too i mean i i go there at least once every two months just to get just yeah. to go see the michelangelo for one yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a it's and i you know i started my career in 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 undergraduate as a renaissance person so yeah let's go back there that's a good this is a good tip off huh? so because usually i start with that but to some extent but it was so fascinating we just went right into the museum aspect, but somehow you got to this point and it didn't happen overnight. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Pittsburgh. You did grow up in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Interesting. And so I was born in Iowa, but that was, I, I left there when I was in first grade. So I had um, very little of that experience, except somebody might say it's bread in the bone when you're from uh -huh. the Midwest. But And why did your folks go from Iowa to Pittsburgh. Well, my dad was a OBGYN and oh, interesting. he he had a an invitation to join a group in Pittsburgh that mm. was um you know, for him it was prestigious. Mm. I mean, I don't can't remember when he graduated med school, sometime in the 50s. So, this was all this would have been in 71. So, I don't know, he was Mid-career, maybe less than mid-career, but nonetheless. So he went oh, in 71, and he didn't have to go to Vietnam? Your dad? He didn't. He was in Korea. Well, he was in between Korea and Vietnam. Got it. Okay. So he did serve in the Navy, and he was a ship's dock in Orange, Texas, of all places. Mm -hmm. He also has a great yeah, West Star collection. Yeah, Museum, right? Yeah. That's fantastic. Duttons. They did, they're amazing. Deep Duttons. And they have the, their Taos collection is oh, no. it's fabulous. The, um, but that the, the, the naval base is no longer there. Mm-hmm. So when I've been to when I've been to Orange, it's like, you know, yeah, not not a lot except for the star. Yes. <laughs> sorry, well, I, sorry, Orange, Texas. Yeah. No, I enjoy it. I've, <laughs> I've gone to it just to see that collection as well. Well, they, they have a great botan like botanical garden there too. Yeah, I didn't know that. The um, so they so yeah so they came to Pittsburgh and I started my you know growing up there and to to sort of related to what you said earlier, I my mother was a you know, poet really? of sorts. I mean, she was a published poet, but she was a, a housewife poet. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that makes sense. No, but, it does from that yeah. time frame, especially. Yeah. My mom did the same thing. She was, well, I mean, she did research and she was a research scientist, but she also wrote poetry and she was a housewife too. Yeah. Well, my, my mom was typical in that she, of that era, in that she, you know, followed 
my dad yeah. didn't graduate college because he was off to med school and they wanted to get married um, because that allowed, you know, a greater sense of intimacy, really. And, yeah. And that's the 50s, right? Yeah. And that's the 50s. So he was at U, at UIC at, at Chicago Circle Med School, and they went through Illinois, the whole Illinois system. And um, so she she was a she for the period of time he was in med school, she was a um, she did um, TV for, um, you know, broadcast TV as a homemaker. Hmm. I always thought it was funny because my mom was a terrible cook, <laughs> but she was the homemaker on the show in both in Illinois and then in Iowa. She continued this when they moved to Iowa for my job, dad's first job was uh, called home. The one in Iowa was called home fair. And I have these stills of her <laughs> like in the kitchen and, right. and pearls and high heels. So I'm uh-huh. like, <laughs> I guess that was the vision back then that, you know, there was style while you were, you know, making. She must have had this creative bent, though, to she want did. to do yeah, that, no, she right? Did. I mean. She did. And my, you know, my father, when they did move to, so my dad did his residency at McGee, McGee Women's Hospital, which was in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And so some of my siblings were born in Pittsburgh. So he was there for residency. Then he went to Iowa and then they came back. Mm-hmm. And um, she um, she gave birth on TV. Say what? To my brother, my oldest brother. I, was that a planned event or that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? It was all scheduled as part of home fair. Oh my gosh. So, or whatever it was called. That had to be kind of shocking back then. Oh, it was totally, and my mom, my mom breastfed her children, all of us. Yes. For, a, you know, more than a year. But this was in between 56 and 60. On TV? No, no, not on TV. Oh, okay, that would have been too much. Yeah. But I think giving birth was enough. Yeah. But. So she had this like progressive side to her, yeah, obviously, as did my father, I guess. Although you, if you met my dad, he would never have made <laughs> that leap at all. But um, <laughs> but so when I was young, and she was a, or when I was young, growing up, and she was, she would go into town to the Carnegie and meet her poetry group, and I'd go to the Scafe, and because I had piano lessons, and then we'd go to the library, and I'd go to the museum, and I would walk through the the uh, art museum. And that's how I got comfortable, right? Mm. I was super comfortable there. And I found the paintings that I loved and I'd go visit them. Do you remember any of the ones that were? There was, the well, the Monet, they had a great um, Nymphale there. And I would go there to see that. And then Magritte, of course, very typical for a young mm-hmm. kid. The Surrealists, mm-hmm. you know, I found to be you mm-hmm. know, sort of fascinating. And then there were artists like, um, um, Oh gosh, the um, um, the regionalists, some of the regionalists that mm-hmm. they had, and I I just enjoyed the colors and the stories they told, and so I when I went to college, so I went to college in Maine. So, but in high school, before you went to college, were you interested in the arts? Did you go? Okay, this is. Were you making art? No, my my brother, my next oldest brother, was an artist. I mean, mm-hmm. he was that was his thing. I was kind of a the nerd, studious kid mm-hmm. who went to the museum on the weekends and who you know i don't even know i can't even remember what i you know distinguished myself i did it was maybe in an art club and i had you know where you would uh, maybe or writing club it was something i did theater i did yes. musical theater and i did um stage theater mm-hmm. as as you can in 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 school and then oh i forgot about this actually i was uh, not many people know this 
They are now. They are going to know now, but they don't like they don't think about it. Although, unless you do it, I was in forensics. Yeah, in high school. Yes. So I did the and I I excelled and won a lot of competitions in the um, dramatic interpretation of literature. Hmm. So and I remember I I would do my performative piece was Edgar Allan Poe's Hop Frog. Do you know that story? Mm-mm. It's it's a horrible story of a of a man who is a kind of jester, a hunchback, and he's made fun of all the time. And then he gets revenge mm. by killing mm. all of the elites mm. in this dramatic scene. So I would do that as competition, and you know, other people in forensics would do debate or whatever. Right. But I did that, so I had a dramatic. I guess I had a dramatic. Yeah, like your mom. Yes. (laughs) And so I eventually went to. um, I left. I, I, you know, the story I tell myself anyway was, I had most of the kids in my high school went to either Penn State Mm -hmm. or South, and the big you know, quote unquote elite school that drew people was Duke. Yeah. And I applied to Duke and I got in, I applied to Davidson and I got in, but I had a terrible experience visiting there. So, and then I applied to Princeton and I got waitlisted. And the only other school I applied to was, um, Bowdoin Mm -hmm. up in Maine. And I'd never been. And I, um, didn't want to go to the South all of a sudden when I got my, all my letters and I was waitlisted at Princeton. And I remember sitting in the, in the barbers, you know, at the barber shop reading people magazine. And mm-hmm. there was a little column that was about Brooke Shields getting into Princeton. Yeah. And there was a line in that co- little short column that said, there's some poor kid who got waitlisted <laughs> so yeah. she could go. And I was like, Oh my God, that's <laughs> me. Um, oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> so I, I just chose to go to Bowdoin. And I'd never been there. What year was the nineteen? Well, I graduated high school in eighty three. Yeah, so right at that time frame in eighty three. Yeah. yeah, you get Brooke so, Shields. You listening to this? <laughs> Costume Princeton. She did well though. She's smart. She's a very, She's smart, a very person, smart person. Actually. Yeah, so, she may have gotten it on her own. And actually, think, it wasn't. <laughs> I think it probably was just. Bitter. But in your mind, it was I'm sour sure at that grapes point, at that I'm point. Sure yeah. you felt it. So you go to Bowdoin, and you're going to. Did you have? an idea of what you wanted to do at that time? You know, I thought I was going to go into religion. Mm. I was pretty active in our church mm. in those high school years and, and in a very nerdy, weird way, which I won't go into, but the, um, um, I got along with adults better than I did sometimes my peers in mm-hmm. those years. So it was just a very strange situation. And, but I went to Bowdoin, I went to, I took a religion course with mm-hmm. a, a guy named um, Bill Gohegan. I still remember him. Giant of a man. And he was a Jungian. So mm-hmm. I know that. I this, understand that. Yeah, yeah right? It was great. And the, the reading list for that first course was eye-opening to I me. Bet. It was Kinda amazing. Kind of go, oh, this is what life's all about. Exactly. Right? He did Zen. He did, you know, yeah. Niebuhr, all these different, you know, r- r- and I was like, this is not what they taught me in the No, this is a different kind of church. religion. Oh, I get it. This is, this is totally different. So <laughs> No so, hell, no heaven. What's going on? Right. So my aspirations towards the clergy sort of tempered pretty quickly. and But I took a, a freshman, they had what they called freshman seminars. Yeah. And I took it with um, a man named Clifton Olds. I, I'm not sure he's still alive. He might still be alive. He'd come to Bowdoin the year before from Michigan. He was a tenured professor at, of art history at Michigan. And he was a medievalist. And um, 
he did a seminar on Michelangelo, and it changed my life. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I just love that. And why was that? Life. Was it because of his enthusiasm? Oh, yeah. And he made people... I took his Art 101 that same year, and literally, when he did Bruegel's The Massacre of the Innocents, students were crying. Wow. Because he was so, like... It wasn't. He wasn't dramatic. No. He just brought the paintings alive. Yeah. He was a storyteller. He was a storyteller. Yeah. And he's very serious. Like, you didn't mess around with him. Yeah. You know, there was no, you know, fooling this guy. He didn't smile a lot. So when you would have, <laughs> you know, student meetings, it was like stoic, stone yeah. face. But, you know, if you were willing to put in the work, you learned a lot and he respected that. Yes. And I, um, I, so I, I just started down that route and I got my museum chops because I intern, I volunteered, not volunteered. I had a job at the Bowdoin College Museum of Art, which is still a fabulous mm -hmm. institution. And, um, I worked for the preparator. So I framed things, matted things. I did, you know, installations, and that was my that was my fraternity mm. throughout college. So I did theater still, and I did the art museum, and I was very much driven by art history. So I took you know tons of art history and majored in that. And um, there was a, a a visiting professor who came. His name was Brian Lukasher, and he ended up teaching at Vassar. But I took an American art seminar with him and I fell in love with American art. But there wasn't a lot of opportunity through most of my years until my senior year, they hired an Americanist. And I loved her. She was great. But I had already committed to the Renaissance. And so I wrote my senior thesis on Sandro Botticelli. Mm. And I still, in fact, there's a show from the Uffizi at the Minneapolis Institute of Art right now. And I'm like, I think I'm just going to buy a ticket and go <laughs> up there because I still love him. And, and, um, and that was very meaningful. I spent a, you know, a half a year in, in Florence and, um, but it gave me a, a rootedness and art history that was different than, I mean, even then, even in the mid eighties, American art was still yeah, kind of, you know, proving itself mm -hmm. and the Renaissance had no problem right. <laughs> proving itself. Right. And, um, so I, I went, I, when I, but when I graduated, I, I got a museum job. I wanted to work in a museum. So I was very persistent. Did you want to be a curator? Did you think, or I did didn't you know, know what yeah. that meant yeah. really? I right. mean, I was so ignorant and as far as experience and, and I knew the museums were viable professional lives. Right. But I didn't really know what that meant. And so I worked at the Brooklyn Museum and the mm. Jersey City Museum. I had two jobs and I had a night job. I lived in Brooklyn. Mm. And I got associated with two remarkable curators at the Brooklyn Museum who are still friends. And um, they just told me one day, like, if you want to do this, you have to go to back to school. So I I applied and I ended up choosing to go to Penn. Mm -hmm. um, and the, at that time, a scholar who just passed away recently, actually, um, Elizabeth Johns, um, who was known at that moment for this transformative book she wrote on Thomas Aikens, mm. 
had moved from Pitts, the University of Pittsburgh to Penn to be their, you know, tenured professor of American art. So I studied with her mm. and this all through a PhD. Yeah. 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 And all throughout that time, I worked at museums. Like, so I knew something was going on because I <laughs> worked at the Philadelphia Museum of Art in different capacities. Um, and I was deeply associated with that profession such that when I was getting towards graduation or graduation, do you ever really graduate from graduate school? Yeah. No. Right. <laughs> but when I was getting to that point where they're like, okay, it's time for you to leave. Right. <laughs> um, I was married at the time and um, my uh, then wife was an architectural historian and she got her first kind of gig in Chicago. And so we moved from Philadelphia to Chicago and I begged and pleaded until I got a job, a soft money job or an intern, not an intern, but a, a research job at the Art Institute. Mm -hmm. And I worked for a curator there named Judy Barter, who's done amazing work and her career. And she trained me, you know, to be a curator and um, she hired me full time and I stayed there for six, seven years at the art Institute. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I came on there when they were doing their big Mary Cassatt retrospective. Mm. And that's where I cut my teeth mm. as to what it meant to be a, you know, an right. author and a curator. Right. And a, did you write something for that? I did. Nice. I, that was the first thing she said. I got there in like June and she said, by August, you have to write an essay <laughs> on Mary Cassatt's Good early luck. career. Nice. And I was like, okay, uh -huh. but you did it. Right. Yeah. Those were the days like when I hear about what do they call it? Quiet quitting. I'm yeah. like, there was no quiet quitting <laughs> when I was, you know, starting right. professional life. Um, you worked until, you know, they said they couldn't live without you. Yeah. That was your goal. Right. <laughs> and um, and I did, you know, I got my love for American um, American landscape painting at that time. Mm. And um, and then my Paula. My wife then moved, got a job at Washu, mm, and so I was a yeah, I was in a quagmire because, as somebody said to me, "You have tenure at Yale. Why would you want to leave right. you know, the Art Institute?" And I was like, "Well, you're kind of right," but we were going to have a family, and um, or we wanted a family. Or wait, she was she got pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there was a job in um, we commuted. I commuted for a while, and then. There was a job at the Missouri History Museum, mm -hmm. which has a, you may or may not know this, they have one of the most fine history museum art collections in the country. Mm. So I could do both. And I was the head of collections there. And then literally a year into that project or that job, a year and a half into that job, the director at the um, St. Louis Art Museum had gotten a recommendation from my curator mentor at the Art Institute. And he invited me out to lunch and he was looking for an assistant director mm. to be the chief curator. And after, you know, managing that over six months, the kind of courtship, um, they hired me at the St. Louis Art Museum. And that was to be the um, underling for the executive director, basically? Yeah. yeah. And curator. And curator yeah. of American art. Yeah, and nice. they have a great collection. That's where I got the American West became. Well, when I was working at the Art Institute of Chicago, when I left... We were, I was working with Judy on a project called Window on the West, mm. which was about Chicago's influence 
which you'll know more than I do. I was very fascinated with Elbridge Ayer mm -hmm. and then the group of Taoist artists who left Chicago right. yeah. and went to, to the West. So the project was about Chicago's influence mm. on the American West. That was big. Big, yeah. it was huge in, in very particular ways. And um, so that was my introduction. And then when I got to St. Louis, it's kind of hard not to do the West in a different way. Mm -hmm. It's a very different West than what's in Texas. Right. But that was the, that was the, you know, the place it all started. It was St. Louis. My relatives were there. Bill Sublett. No, I'm, I'm was, sure. Oh was, yeah. That's a name I know. Yeah. That was the I mean, not Bill, but I know Sublett. Yeah. yeah William Sublett. Yes. Yeah. He was, you know, fur trader and a mountain man. And that oh was the gosh. kickoff was from no, St. Louis that's there. That's why your name seems so yeah, familiar. Yeah. yeah. You probably have some in the historical. Yes, I haven't looked, but I'm there's sure. probably some yeah. letters and things. Well, the the project, when I got to the history museum, they were working on because they were the center for the bicentennial of mm. Lewis and Clark. Yeah. So I saw a lot of that. I was doing other stuff, but um, I saw a lot of that narrative unfolding. And then when I got to St. Louis Art Museum, one of the first projects that I, because you can't not be asked to be a Bingham expert when you're at the St. Louis Art Museum. So I did a project on Bingham, mm -hmm. looking at his election series. And that kind of immersed me in the west of St. Louis mm. because. You know, that was a touch, as you said, a touch point. Yeah, it was. In the early years. And certainly, you know, Bingham played a large role in the boosterism of the West in general. So, I, you know, I started to kind of re recognize that this is kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, and then at some point, you know, I was there for t almost 10 years. Mm. And uh, I, this job, you know, a job, parallel job at the, at the Eamon Carter came up and I went down this kind of, as I said, it would have been a lateral move. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, for whatever reason, when I got back and they seemed seemingly liked me and I just called the, my, you know, Ruth's son and the mm -hmm. board vice president at the time and said, well, if, if you decide that you need a new director mm. in the next period of time, you know, I'd be interested in, in, you know, reapplying, but this is a, you know, lateral move for me. And it, it doesn't really make sense right. in a lot of ways. And, uh, he called me like six days later mm. and he said, well, we're thinking about the trans, you know, the transition to a new director. Mm. Would you come back down? And so that, I mean, very unconventional, right? There wasn't a, right pet hunter right big pool of save them money <laughs> yeah save them a lot of money and um and ruth was you know still alive of course and she wanted to build she wanted a succession plan mm. so i was part of that makes sense yeah and um you know the the biggest challenge that i had in the first five years of my time there was um the lack of awareness of what it meant when a founder passed away mm. and how the museum had to build a new culture mm. and a culture that they didn't have before, which mm -hmm. was a really director led culture. And boy, oh boy, Mark, I scraped my knees. I had some serious scars, but you know, I had great support from the board mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, over time a really, strong team that was very um bent on um uh, making the institution successful 
and not driving ego. It's funny how that can yeah. make a big difference. No, it can and does. Yeah. And so we, you know, we've taken, we're still building that culture and I'm okay with that. I'm like, it takes a lot of time sometimes to, to, to make something that's going to last because that's kind of our goal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel like we've achieved that to a certain extent and um, that the museum is in a good place and, and it's opening its vision to some of the stories that, that, and the, some of the ambition that I've described today. Mm-hmm. And you've done it long enough now, 11 years that you, you're in a rhythm. Yeah, no. Yeah. yeah. The, yeah. And I mean, seriously, the, the leadership group at the museum is, you know, we all like each other. Yeah, we, nice. you know, we're willing, very willing to share authority so that, um, it's not like the celebrity director, which right. is the, the culture I was brought up in. I mean, that's not me, but that's what I thought was success. Right. And to be able to let that go was really important and say like, I don't need to do everything. You right. know, there are lots of people with lots of talents. <laughs> well, and now directors that are coming in are often with business degrees, yes. right? And yeah. MBAs and things like that, because part of the your role is to get funding and have money and do all that stuff. That's a big we're part a business. Of it, yeah. Right? We're we're totally a business. Yeah. And you know, the the Carter has a, a really strong foundation financially and but we still have to, you yeah. know, balance the budget and we have to make hard decisions and reduce staff, you know, in various moments. We were super lucky during the pandemic that we were able to maintain our staff levels. Mm. And um and that made a big difference in the morale. But mm-hmm. I tell you, one of the biggest challenges, aside from, you know, telling all the stories you want to tell and in in the in the love of what you do, right? Mm-hmm. It's very different than academic life. Yeah, I would think. Very I mean, different. it's a business. You're run, a business. You have to run this big thing with yeah. lots of employees and liabilities and just everything. And, you know, and people. And, and buildings. It, <laughs> and well, building, it's like, would you rather, you know, spend three hours in the archive or... Listen to what chiller you need to replace in yeah. two years. <laughs> um, yeah. But the um, they all have to get done. And the biggest one of the biggest challenges is being very visible and effective for the staff mm. because morale can make or break. Yeah, an it's the culture. You got to have a good culture. You do. Yeah, you really do. But I, you know, I think what we, we're really being able to explore these new narratives and. You know, it's coming back. We've really been um, looking at our Western identity again. Mm. So I'm sort of coming full circle here, which is part of what um, we're finding. And much to my surprise is that we actually have been having a we we have had a very strong program around the American West. Mm -hmm. We just didn't realize it. Mm. Because it's taken form that hasn't been conventional, mm. um, and a lot of that has to do with some of the living artists we've been working with, who are, you know, whether they're Mexican nationals or they're, um, or they're, you know, artists, indigenous artists, uh, or they're artists who are looking at the West differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing that I find really, and I was thinking about this on the plane ride over here, is because the, the one artist that that I've heard you talk to Kevin remind me of his Kevin Chupik. He, he, his Western landscape is not a recapitulation of what Remington and Russell did. No. More and like I'm like, Hotney. 
It is. It's yeah. like there's a Walmart in this landscape. I Not know. really, but there could is. Could be. No, there could, could be. be. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, but that is part of the Western landscape. Absolutely. So how do we deal with that? Yeah. You know, in a in a in a visible way. It doesn't always have to be a Walmart, but how do you acknowledge that part? And it can take very many forms, some of them not narrative like that. But that's kind of my interest for the Carter is to be in that space. Um, but at the same time, we are super supportive of the Kabi artists of America who yeah. have relocated to Fort Worth and are, you know, part of our community. Mm -hmm. And many of our collectors are deeply interested mm -hmm. in the work that they do. And are they mutually exclusive? No. Mm -mm. But how do you build meaningful bridges across what can seem like a big divide sometimes? I think exposure sometimes, you know, if you have, you know, CA stuff right next to your Marsh and Hartley across the way. Right? I mean, just seeing it, you know, you may have not gone in for that. You know, I remember at the... That's well, a really interesting point, yeah. actually. I remember the LACMA. I went to see a David uh, Smith sculpture exhibit and next door... Uh, <laughs> which we thought I would have been wanting to see that was the blankets of the Hearst. And it was like, these are fantastic. Two phenomenal shows. I'm enjoying both of them. I actually came in for the sculptures and now, I but have now these, I'm over here. Now I spent, <laughs> I spent equal time. I will say at both, but that's the same kind of thing. So the people that are interested in cowboy may go, Oh, this other stuff is very interesting too. And it works together and I can see it and I understand it in some kind of contextual component because right. the, obviously the curators see that they can be that way so it's yeah. good i mean and that's to the point of the ideological diversity yeah which is there doesn't have to be right and wrong right correct and i think sometimes the 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 stage can be set as though there has to be right and wrong yeah and <laughs> that's usually, yeah, that usually is it. it is that and that's not anything i'm personally interested in because i find all the groups to be fascinating i mean they're fascinating people if you ask questions yeah they're fascinating you know the stories that get told are i mean you know that because mm -hmm. you've done how many of these now 230 <laughs> plus, yeah. you've heard the whole i mean you've really well, created a, a quilt in this project that you've had been doing for years, years now. Yeah, yeah. five years yeah and i learn every time it's like oh i didn't know about that or i understand i can put the pieces together a little differently and go oh that person and that person there actually is a connection, even though you would never have thought there would be. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Well, there's a lot to look forward to, I think, in you know where these where these um, variant stories intersect and diverge, and mm -hmm. I'm super excited about it because it's reinvigorated my belief that the Carter can be involved in all the narratives. Mm -hmm. Sure, they can. And the American West is instrumental to our dna and it gets lost sometimes i mean from from the point of view that most people who don't know the museum think it's a western art museum yeah people who experience the museum are oftentimes saying where's the american west <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah. it's like okay yeah. well wait a minute <laughs> um, so but i think we can be a rich um, place for all of that. Yeah. And as I said, much to my surprise, I'm like, oh my God, we've done like six projects on the American West in the last four years. Wow. And sometimes we just don't know that we've done it. We did um, a, pro a contemporary project um, with a youngish artist out um, whose last name is Rodriguez. And she works, and I'm just forgetting her first name, which I'm embarrassed. 
um, because I've sat at dinner right. with her many yeah. times. But she um, she works with um, native materials that she um, b- rebuilds. So the 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 pigments and mm-hmm. the paper she all makes herself, oh, wow. and she enlists some of the narrative techniques of the Mesoamerican tradition. Mm. And so she creates these maps that are just phenomenal. Mm. And they're, but they're often, I mean, the one that we, in the show that we did with her, um, she had, it was during the pandemic period. And these were her pandemic works that she did when she had a fellowship at Joshua Tree. And they had, you know, helicopters from the George, you know, from the protests in them. But you wouldn't have seen them as anything other than narrative elements to a story that she was telling. In mm-hmm. other words, it wasn't beating you over the head, right? But they were instrumental to the experiences she had of the pandemic mm-hmm. in this isolated artist residency right. that she had up in the desert. Yeah, you know? yeah. Those kind of things are wonderful because it's you know the artist has their own interpretation, but I think most artists want you to have your interpretation of what they do without influencing them. And I love that. Yeah, that's you know? very true. Yeah. And that's part of the, you know, part of the dynamism that with the curators, I see this in particular because they all have diverse training and background mm-hmm. and interests, but they all love to work with living artists. I do. I mean, it's fantastic <laughs> yeah, to watch yeah, because really this energy that, yeah, you don't always see when they're working on, you know, Louise Nevelson or, Though I love that. And you have a big one too. We do. And we're doing a show in the fall, oh, a year God. from now. Or a year from, like, is this fall? No, a year from this fall so, in 23. Wow. It's a Nevelson show. And is it going to be? Of her 50s and 60s work. Yeah. And it will be sculpture and also her, some of her paperwork and different things. Yeah. Too? It's too, it's actually one of the first times that her paperwork is integrated with her sculpture. Oh, God. Yeah. I just so we, we have, yeah. and again, this was you know, the progressiveness of Ruth in her early days, she was one of the original subscribers um, at Tamarind. Mm. So she has the, the, you know, the select deluxe sets from the entire 60s through the 75, I think, 3,300 3, works of art from um, Ed Ruscha to... Ruth Asawa to mm-hmm. another uh, favorite, right? Right. Oh, okay. I love well, Asawa. we and we just got one of her sculptures oh, several years ago yeah. now from the fifties, which is brilliant. And um, but so our curator of of modern art of twentieth century art has been just compelled to look at this period of Nevelson's work in the fifties and sixties mm. when she was working at Tamarind. Mm-hmm. Well, two two she had two um, two um, residencies there that, uh, she just innovated the medium. She innovated the lithographic medium Mm -hmm. in a way that also affected her sculpture. So it's like looking at the intersection Mm. of those two, um, efforts. And the thing I'm always amazed at, you know, sitting in my desk where I don't do this Mm -hmm. right anymore in the same way, certainly is, um, they get it done so effortless. It seems so effortless. They're kind of going like, you don't, you know, you know, my husband's not talking to me and I've been sweating blood for five weeks, but you know, in the matter of two years, they're able to put these projects together. When I was at the art Institute, it would, sometimes these projects were like decades long. It just doesn't happen anymore. 
And I'm, I'm grateful for that because no institutions get bound, you know, bogged down in the perfectionism right. of storytelling. Right. Is that, is that an oxymoron? I yeah, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but the, um, so we're able to, you know, she, this project has burst through the pandemic and is going to hit the stage in, in this fall. Yeah. I'm so coming. come, come I see am, it. Now I'm going to come to it. Yeah. That's one of the artists I always wanted to add to my collection. So getting expensive, but there, there's, there's, there's pieces there's, out there. Yeah. There are. She, I didn't realize she did bronzes, but yeah, yeah there are yeah. a whole series of bronzes that are beautiful. So do you know who Leonardo Drew is? Yes. Yeah. We're doing a project with him too. Oh, I have a big <laughs> ma major work of his in do my you own really? collection. Yeah. Oh my which gosh. Which is done off of a Navajo rug actually. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Navajo blanket. Yeah. So when is that? When is that? That is um, simultaneous with um, Nevelson. <gasps> So that's fantastic. Yeah. So it's going to be yeah. a, a dialogue of sorts. Oh, wow. And again, same curator. And we have a space that is about immersive mm. experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've, since 2019, we've done four or five, which have been all great. And, and, um, um, and in fact, uh, a photographer named Stephanie Sajuko, who's very well known, but you have to know photography, mm -hmm. contemporary photography. I didn't know who she was mm -hmm. until I, I learned. But she did a whole project on the American West that mm -hmm. I didn't even know was possible. Mm -hmm. But she did it about Remington. Mm -hmm. It was fascinating, but um, but very, very, very intellectual. Like the Remington people would, the Remington aficionados would have been like what mm. yeah. <laughs> but it it opened up a different dialogue about the artist and his influence mm. and his impact and the institutional interest in the stories that he tells yeah yeah there's a lot there yeah good and bad yes yeah no he was yeah <laughs> you know I, I, huh. we i laughed a little bit because we just we did one of the curators did a project on remington and homer from yeah. uh it was in 2020 it was right when the pandemic held and it it opened in denver and, and we showed it and then it went to a third venue which i can't remember yeah. and um um right during the the uh social justice stuff and mm. we were just the curator was like yeah the carter's opening a show about two white guys <laughs> one who was a horrible racist yeah, you know? right but it was also saying these were two artists who were um representative of american points of view yeah that weren't influenced quote unquote not european right mm -hmm, they weren't right. derivative of a european aesthetic and one told the story of the West and one told the story of the East. Yeah. So, and they, and they lived and worked in the same city. They had the same collectors. They worked with the same galleries and they didn't know each other. Oh, that's interesting. It's hard to imagine actually. You mean, they probably knew of each other's they work. They knew of each other, yeah, I'm but, sure, but they didn't know. They yeah, hadn't met. Connected. They didn't have dinner. They didn't. Yeah. I know. could maybe see that if they're in different circles, potentially. I just always thought it was crazy that they had the same collectors, but they didn't you know i guarantee you there's some artists that i have that uh like ed mel that may not have met you know some of the you know great western artists uh, that are you know others that they just haven't for whatever reason haven't connected they know of each other's work they probably like each other's work but it does happen well you know? that's that's good to hear actually because yeah. you know it was like it was you know, it was head scratching to me but yeah um but the story was still fascinating to see their works kind of 
to your point about juxtaposition, to see their work side by side was revelatory. Yes. Well, and they're both great. They are. I mean, they're artists, very strong just, artists. Yeah, super sure. sure. Well, and the one I have to tell you, the last, you know, I'm probably running out of time here, but my last uh, discovery that I've been having fun with in relationship to the Carter's influence in its early years and the Western American story was um, Ruth and her first husband, J. Lee Johnson, um, were deep friends. And in fact, um, this couple were the godparents to their children with um, Henriette and Peter Hurd. Mm. And so I've been on a journey to understand the impact of, um, in particular, Peter's work on the American Western story because mm. it kind of gets lost in there. I mean, mm -hmm. he was very, you know, he was very influential in his sure. day. Well, he did the portrait of LBJ, which of course LBJ hated it. He did hate it. Yeah. Yeah. It was a good portrait. I like that. It's it was a great portrait. Yeah, it's a good portrait. Well, that would be a good one to bring Kim Wiggins into since Kim lives right there in Peter oh, Heard world. Oh, is he in, yeah. in Roswell or San yeah. Patricio? He, he lives in Roswell and his wife, Maria, is from... You know, like right there at Lincoln area. So no, I didn't know that. Yeah, they're intimately involved. I think they know the Herd family well. And well, I do. You, I know Michael very. His son, yeah. who runs the Sentinel Ranch still, um, as a bed as a Airbnb. Yeah. If you ever want to stay in the yeah. uh, in the studio uh -huh. of Peter Herd, you can do that. Oh, that's cool. But um, that's and and Michael Mike's Michael's a artist himself. He's yeah. a really accomplished um, watercolorist and landscapist and um. I've just, I've just, I mean, he's helped me understand the influence of both of his parents mm -hmm. in the story of the American West in a period of time that was competing with, right, Pollock. And yeah, of course, all that stuff. Rosen. Big you know, time. And it, it sometimes took a different route. Mm -hmm. But yeah. it's an important story. And they, like the, the, the Eamon Carter gave Peter Hurd his first, you know, late career, well, mid-career retrospective. Mm. When was that? 64. Oh, yeah. Really early. There's one well, they were only museum for three years. And it yeah. was two years before that Carter gave another artist of the American West a little later than her mid-career. But George O'Keefe had a retrospective in 66. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder if the herd uh, LBJ found him because of your the Carter. Could have been. Yeah. yeah. I have sense, pictures right? of, of, of LBJ with Ruth walking around. So. Yeah. And he was president at that time. That's when he would have become president. Right there. That's like, a good, I didn't even thought of that. Yeah. That's probably true. Yeah. I would, seems like that would be, oh yeah, he's important. Let me do it. Well, one of my favorite, after Ruth's death, but one of the favorite kind of coincidences, I guess, if you want to call it that, was the family, of course, wanted to um, valorize Ruth in a certain way after her passing. And <clears throat> Ruth had never been a person that um, bolstered herself up. Hmm. She was very Texan that way, sort yeah. of quiet. And I mean, not quiet. She was a steel magnolia, trust me. But she um, didn't she didn't engrandize herself. Yeah. And so she never really had a portrait. Hmm. And until late in life, when an artist named um, Stuart Gentling, Stuart and Scott Gentling were very famous twins that were artists in the period from the 60s forward. But she didn't like it. Mm. Mm -hmm. And um, so they didn't have a great portrait. And I was visiting the Sentinel Ranch and talking to Michael. And he's like, oh, my mom painted her. Oh, and I have it? it down in the basement oh, wow. somewhere. And it took him a couple of days to find it. Yeah. But he found it. 
and then she's beautiful and you know the family bought it and now hangs in the library of the museum which was you know ruth's great as i said great belief that scholarship was important and it you know prior to that it had sat for since it was painted in the 60s in this basement of the sentinel ranch i just i just love that when That's that happens wonderful. You know? <laughs> well yeah you definitely have to reach out to kim wiggins and talk to him too because He's oh, I love wealth. his work. He's a wealth of knowledge. His father was very instrumental as an art dealer as well. So, yeah, he's has a lot of information about her. And he grew up there. I mean, he, you know, I will, Kim I will. is right there. And I grew up, you know, an hour away from where Kim is. Yeah, because you were from New Mexico. Yeah, eastern yeah. New Mexico, yeah. Well, the one thing, and I find Kim to be one of those artists who's, you know, maybe pushing the boundaries is the wrong description, but who's bringing a unique vision to the American yeah. West. He's making his own boundaries. Yeah. And he's focusing on his culture and his, you know, his interpretation of how he grew up in the West, Eastern New Mexico, especially, which is very specific. Do you know, because one artist, not as, not as, not as um, abstract, I would say, as, as Kim, do you know this artist in Kansas City named Phil Epp? Yeah, I know who Phil Epp is. Sure. Yeah. Same kind of thing. I like his work very much. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that he's part of the CA artist because it's a it's a a variant. Well, they need to do that, right? They yeah. need to expand their horizons. I I I say that as I think again, it just opens new collectors and new venues, and people that might be interested in his work could also go and go. Oh, I love Martin Greeley as well. Yeah. You know, I can see the connection. They work. It's different, but I love it. So yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I just you know, and they when they were we we hosted the. A panel, or the, we didn't do anything except host it. But they had their artist panel um, discussion for their weekend, and uh, it was great to see. I think it was Martin who recognized Phil mm. as somebody who was bringing <laughs> new, you know, there a you new go. voice. Isn't that great? Yeah, that's. And then he won Best in Show. Yeah, there you go. So yeah. I thought that was really, and I, I told some of my artist friends, and they were like, "Really." Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, I mean, Martin understands. He's, he understands good art. Yeah. He's a great artist. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, Andrew, I think we did talk for a while. I yes. Have, I have no idea how long this went. But <laughs> well, I, it's so much fun. But, and you, I really admire what you do here. <laughs> thank so, you. you know, thank you. Yeah. No, we'll, uh, we'll talk a little more afterwards and we've got some time. Uh, we can go look around the gallery. But thank That'd you for great. A, coming in so we could do it in person. Uh, I always think that's a little more intimate and, better actually better visuals and voice quite frankly and just to take the time and to you literally got off the plane took an uber came over here and like into the thick of things <laughs> it's the only way to do it yeah, it's the yeah. only way to do it no, i've done it before I, i've done that before and it's actually can be hard <laughs> to do that but you seem to have done pulled it off very nicely so. well i had a i had a, a a very easy and somewhat restful flight so i think oh, that nice. helped <laughs> yeah that does help yeah and the landscape coming in here is amazing out the window oh no it's beautiful who sounds beautiful oh i didn't realize i mean I, this sounds really really naive but the mountainscape here is oh, yeah we remarkable. got snow up on the mountains yeah lots of it we can go see it right from here one of the reasons <laughs> i put this gallery here where i did in the foothills is i wanted to be next to the mountain so i could see it Sabino Canyon, which is a great hiking area, is, you know, four minutes away. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. People visit Tucson, just don't come. I'm ready live. to retire here. I'm not ready to retire, but when yeah. I'm ready, I'm ready to come. So. Yeah, yeah there's, there's curators and people that have. They found It's a very arty, 
you know, centric kind of place, even though it's kind of a little bit off the map. It is. A lot of artists live here, a lot of people interested in art. Well, one of the things that impressed me when I was here last, which was the first time I'd been here, so just a couple months ago, was the um, the kind of anchor feel of importance that your university brings to mm, this yeah. city. Yeah, they have, and they have a great art collection. Oh, my God. You know, Rothko, O'Keefe, de Kooning back in Thank place. God, right? Right, yeah, they got a bit. And they have lots of nice things, yeah, they do. They have a bunch of drawings by Dixon. Huge that Edith Hamling. Is that right? Them. Yeah, wow. huge group of early. Well, I drawings. was struck with the Hogue that they have, yeah, which I right. thought was yeah, remarkable. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you would, right? Being Texas. Yeah, no. Yeah. And our own museum is very nice too, too. So oh, yeah. No, I had a great well. time there. Yeah. And that the show that they had on what New Western Vision yeah, or exactly. actually there was Idolot. There was diverse. They were bringing very much all so. those stories together. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're really, that's uh, Christina Brenza, and she's really working on bringing native voices into uh you know the tma in our collection and we're really trying to work on building that native component both antique to contemporary yep well it's rich yep <laughs> very good all right let's call it a day and we can we'll go look at art great right, thank thanks. you you bet thanks well andrew i think we did talk for a while I yes i have no idea how long this went but <laughs> well it's so much fun but, and you i really admire what you do here thank so you you know thank you yeah no we'll uh we'll talk a little more afterwards and we've got some time and uh, we can go look around the gallery but thank That'd you for great. a coming in so we could do it in person uh, i always think that's a little more intimate and better actually better visuals and voice quite frankly and just to take the time and to you literally got off the plane took an Uber, came over here and like into the thick of things. <laughs> it's the only way to do it. Yeah, it's the yeah. only way to do it. Yeah, I've done it before. I, I've done that before and it's actually can be hard <laughs> to do that, but you seem to have done, pulled it off very nicely. So. Well, I had a I had a, a, a very easy and somewhat restful flight. So I think oh, that nice. helps. <laughs> yeah, that does help. Yeah. And that landscape coming in here is amazing out the window. Oh no, it's beautiful. Tucson's beautiful. Oh, I didn't realize. I mean, I, this sounds really really naive but the mountainscape here is oh yeah we remarkable. got snow up on the mountains yeah lots of it we can go see it right from here one of the reasons <laughs> i put this gallery here where i did in the foothills is i wanted to be next to the mountains so i could see it sabino canyon which is a great hiking area is you know four minutes away yeah no it's fantastic people visit tucson just don't come i'm ready live. to retire here. i'm not ready to retire but when yeah. i'm ready i'm ready to come so yeah yeah there's, there's curators and people that have they found it's a very arty you know centric kind of place even though it's kind of a little bit off the map it is a lot of artists live here a lot of people interested in art well one of the things that impressed me when i was here last which was the first time i'd been here so just a couple months ago was the um the kind of anchor feel of importance that your university brings to mm, this yeah. city yeah they have and they have a great art collection oh my god you know rothko keith de kooning back in thank place. god right right yeah they got a bit and they have lots of nice things yeah they do they have a bunch of drawings by dixon huge that edith hamling is that them. right yeah wow. huge group of early well i drawings. was struck with the hogue that they have yeah which I right thought was yeah, remarkable yeah. exactly yeah you would right being texas yeah no and our own museum is very nice too. too so oh yeah, no, I had a great well. time there. Yeah. And that the show that they had on what New Western Vision yeah, or exactly. actually there was Idolot. There was diverse. They were bringing very much all so. those stories together. Yeah, and they're you know they're really that's uh, Christina Brenza, and she's really working on 
bringing native voices into uh, you know the TMA and our collection. We're really trying to work on building that native component, both antique to contemporary. Yep. Well, it's rich. Yep. <laughs> Very good. All right. Let's call it a day, and we can we'll go look at art. Great. Right, Thank thanks. you. You bet. Thanks.